Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, a series brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dream Radically is the need for those passionate about justice and equity to imagine the world they want to see, to envision a place that provides the societal conditions necessary for true justice to be the norm for all people. Join us as we embark on the journey of dreaming radically with community leaders, artists, activists, educators, and more. My name is Miles Francisco, and I'll be your host on this path of imagining. Let's dream. Today, I am joined by Aaron Simpson, who is a leader in the community and at the University of Oklahoma. We talk about whiteness, both as a social construct and an incredibly powerful and violent force. We talk about the ways that white people can best show up for black and brown people in this country and across the world. We talk about aspiring allyship, performative allyship, and so much more. This conversation is deeply important for white people to hear and to understand and to begin moving to a place of anti-racism and to understand that there's no neutrality, there's no middle ground, there's no moderate stance on the issue of racism. You're either anti-racist or you're racist. So let's get into this conversation. Aaron Simpson is a director for the Gender Inequality Center and coordinator for the OU Advocates at the University of Oklahoma. In this role, Aaron directs the gender-based violence prevention programs, advocacy response to sexual assault, outreach programming, and LGBTQ plus education and programming for all three University of Oklahoma campuses. Aaron currently holds two degrees in education and women's and gender studies. She is a doctoral candidate in the Educational Leadership and Policy Studies Program at OU. So welcome, Erin, to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm well, looking forward to it. You know, I wanted to have this conversation in the current moment. The past few episodes on this podcast have all sort of revolved around the recent social uprisings in response yeah. to the public murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and all these other people. Um, and just navigating these spaces, talking about abolition and talking about restorative justice and policing and things of that nature. But I think, you know, I wanted to have this conversation around whiteness and white people in general and sort of this idea of white people understanding their racial identity as just that, as a racial identity. Um, and wanted to have you as someone who I know does social justice, justice-oriented work and who navigates spaces while holding white skin privilege and also doing it in a way that makes space and, you know, I think intentionally shows up for Black people and other people of color and other marginalized people in a really intentional and profound way that I think is helpful for other white people to learn from and learn with. So really just want to have a conversation with you sort of about your journey. And that's sort of like my first question for you is just how you got to this place of awakening or, or consciousness. <laughs> First of all, that is the nicest description anyone's ever given to me. And I hope that I continue to work to be worthy of it, right? So whiteness is, is a hell of a drug is kind of like the first thing that I would say, right? Like, because white people are taught that they don't have a racial identity. I don't know that we're taught so intentionally that people recognize that. But once you realize that you have a racial identity and it's one of whiteness, you start to understand all of the places in maybe your upbringing or in the places that were formative for you where your race was just assumed, right? It was just sort of like set as the default, set as the standard, set as the normal. 
and that's, that's certainly my journey, right? I didn't understand myself as white. I came to college. I, I went to OU. I majored in elementary education. So I was going to go, sometimes I cringe thinking about like this person that was going to go into a classroom with small, formative, impressionable minds, not understanding the damage that I was going to do as a white person, because like, I can't ignore that I was going to do it and that I still do it. I just don't always know about it. I didn't understand myself as a raced person truly until probably my junior year of college. I took a class actually from a white professor, Neil Hauser, shout out Dr. Hauser, College of Education. And it was sort of an ed studies class about cultural understandings in the classroom. And he was like, you know, we had to go around and talk about like our racial identity. (laughs) Every single white person. And let's also be really honest, this is the College of Education in elementary education. So that's a lot of white girls, right? It's a lot of really well-intended, nice white ladies in this classroom. And we're all like, um, what? <laughs> like nobody knew how to answer the question. And he was like, oh, are, are you white? And then like people were like, well, I'm Irish. And he was like, is Irish white? <laughs> it was like this horrible moment where I was like, oh my God, I don't know what I am. Like was truly like what I thought. And I remember this is kind of a shameful memory, honestly. So here I am on a podcast with it. But I remember kind of being jealous of people that could describe their racial identity or describe an ethnic identity in a way that they were really connected to. Mm. And I was like, um, just uh, uh, white, right? I sort of, I, like, I felt like weirdly left out, <laughs> which is also kind of violent if you think about it, right? Because here I am this like middle-class privileged white girl in this space where I'm like, wait, I want one of those, <laughs> right? That's awful. I didn't understand myself as anything. I don't have a connection. My family doesn't have a a cultural connection to our immigrant past because my family is certainly full of settler colonists, right? They came in colonists. They came when when, um, immigration wasn't immigration. It was just taking over indigenous land. And I I don't have a cultural connection to the countries or, or, or cultures that they came from. I just have a cultural connection to whiteness in America. I didn't have the language to talk about that at that time. I remember recognizing that that was bad and that I should probably figure out what that meant. That was like 2004. (laughs) So here we are like 16 years later and I'm still trying to figure out what that means, right? What does it mean for me to be a white person in America? What does it mean for me to be an able-bodied cisgender white woman? What does it mean for me to occupy a queer space as a white person? I think that those questions are, are things that I probably, or I hope that I never think that I have the full answer to, because I, I think that would be dangerous. But that's that's how I got here was, was a teacher, right? Um, a teacher uh, in a classroom. And then after that, I started thinking about like when I had had teachers of color and like the messages that I think that they were trying to give me that I had ignored or not understood. Um, and then I started thinking about what I was going to do with my life. It turned out that me being in an elementary level classroom was not actually the dream. <laughs> and so then I decided that I had had, you know, I'd had this amazing formative experience in college that had made me different. And so I wanted to stay in a college environment. And so I went to grad school. I think that's really where it happened. Right. So I had this experience as a junior in college where I'm like, this is not good. It's not good that I can't understand myself or I don't know what my what, what this is. And then I got to grad school and I had faculty that were like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to hold your hand through this. 
here's some reading and you should do better and know better. And that was, that was, that was, that mattered, right? I had faculty like Lupe Davidson. I had faculty like Alon Dancy and Penny Pasquay and folks that, that were really Juanita Vargas that were really asking me to look into who I was showing up as, but more importantly, who I wanted to show up as and for, right? I can continue just to show up as myself, but that's not sufficient, right? Who am I showing up for? Was really sort of the questions that they asked if I wanted to go into higher ed. That's put me on this journey, right? That's put me in this place where I want to continually sort of seek critique of whiteness and of, to some extent, of myself as a gift and as a thing that I get to learn as a point of privilege, right? I get to learn those things because I've never been harmed by them. And so I try to keep that sort of at the forefront of my mind. Mm, yeah. What is that sort of process like of getting, because I'm sure there were plenty of moments and there may still very well be moments now, 16 years down the line of doing this work, right? Of, of shame and of guilt, you know, mm-hmm. of white guilt in response to these things of getting to that place of, because for so many white people, it's a, a place of feeling guilty about mm-hmm. getting to understand the ways that you're privileged from this system mm-hmm. based off of randomness as far as how much melanin you have or don't have. Yeah. And sort of getting to a place of accepting critique. And like you said it beautifully right there of wanting to get this critique and, and take it as a gift to learn. I think that's an amazing way to frame it. I'm sure it wasn't always like that, your junior year of college. <laughs> no. <laughs> like what got you there to, from the places of guilt and shame to a place yeah. of I need the critique is then actually a good thing for me. Dr. Stephen John Quay talks about this a lot. It talks about how to use guilt and shame as a sort of like a, a learning space or that, and that shame is not, is not a productive sort of emotion. Guilt may inspire us and, and can in some places maybe healthy, right? But shame, um, shame is a place where we sort of close down. I would argue that I still experience both guilt and shame, right? That's not, that's not something that's gone. I now sort of have a better coping mechanism for naming that. Like, why am I feeling defensive right now, right? Like, why am I feeling like I want to push back on this? Or why am I having a not all white women moment, right? Like, why, why is that happening? And those coping mechanisms are hard fought and hard won. Sort of at the beginning of this, like understanding myself as a white person, I was defensive, I would say 90% of the time. It was sort of my natural go-to to be like, but I'm trying. Well, it doesn't matter if I'm trying. (laughs) No one's saying I'm not. They're saying that like whiteness in general is a problem. No one's saying that me as an individual person, that I am the cause of, or the root of evil. Like, and understanding that I had to both see myself in systemic problems and separate myself from the systemic problem and say, when people critique that, they're not saying you, Aaron Simpson, are a bad person. They're saying this system is a problem and you continue to benefit from it. When I talk to white people, one of the things that I wish that I had heard from someone that maybe would have hastened my journey but then at the same time like every step of the journey was probably really important right but when I I think about it now I think no one is saying that you created the problem but I am saying that we still benefit from it right like I still benefit from this 
And so it's my job, it's my duty, it's my obligation, it's my moral and ethical drive, right? To say that that's not right. That's not okay. It's not fair if you want to put it in that kind of language, but it's fundamental core, wrong and violent. And so thinking about critique as a gift is something that I have to do every day. Some days I'm not great at receiving the gift. Like I, some days it's a lot harder. And then other days it's like, okay, I can firmly see how that is a good thing that I was just reminded about. Right. But it takes a lot of sort of emotional energy to have gotten there. I think it's really important that people don't think that tomorrow they can just be like, oh, I will, I've gotten rid of all defensiveness. I've learned enough and I will, I'll never be like, but not me in the face of critique, because that's just not true. It's just now I recognize that, first of all, when I'm feeling shame and guilt, that's mine to deal with and definitely not anybody else's. Maybe some like trusted accomplices, but pro- never people of color, right? No, it's never, it's never someone else's burden to take on my shame or guilt. Um, I have trusted people that I process with, but they're definitely in a space where I'm not adding to their burden to process with me, if that makes sense. And those are pieces that I didn't know 16 years ago, right? I just would have talked about this with anybody. I would have been like, hey, you're my friend. Can we chat about this? (laughs) I would have had sort of no conception of what I was doing to them. Right. And that is such a critical and important piece for me to like uncover. And people of color have been saying this for years. Black women specifically have been saying this for generations. Your emotional labor is not my burden to bear. And it is a problem that it takes you all so freaking long to learn this. And so, and it took me a shamefully long time. Like I, I, the things I still feel shame about are the times that I know that I have likely harmed um, my loved ones of color because I wasn't, I just like, was slinging around my own stuff without thinking about how it was landing on them. Those are sort of the coping mechanisms that I think are really critical. Like who are the people you talk to? Um, How do you shift shame into guilt, which is more productive? And how do you, what do you do with that guilt, right? Do you just wring your hands and be like, this is all so bad. I'm so emotionally fraught. No, you donate to bail funds. You put your money where your mouth is. You put your body in the line. Like those are the things that have to happen, but it has to happen internally and with a process, right? Yeah. So, and I think Bell Hooks has talked quite a bit about this and uh, like critique as love, as an example, an experience, a process of love in order to critique a person, to critique an institution, to critique your university. All of these things are coming from a place of love because you want better for that person or for that institution or for that group of people or for that community. That labor to especially come from BIPOC folk, right, is a place because oftentimes it's wanting you all to be better so that you can be with us pushing against these systems that harm us, these systems of violence. So I think that's really great. And you also talked about sort of this idea that you're never there, right? That you've never like reached a place of full awakening and you have all of the answers and you've got it all figured out. And I think this sort of ties into aspiring allyship, um, which yeah. you've helped me sort of um, understand this idea that you, you're never like an ally or full accomplice or it, that's not necessarily a label you should don on yourself. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about like aspiring allyship. Yeah. So I think that the first thing I want to say about aspiring allyship is that people of color, specifically like black women in the movement from the jump have argued that no one it will ever be fully formed, right? That no one will ever, ever be fully formed as an ally or as an accomplice because we're never actually fully formed as people, 
right? Like the idea that we are self-actualized humans walking around the world is flawed. <laughs> Not very many people ever consider themselves fully done. And, and if they do, you know, I, I sort of question that because as the world evolves and as, as we understand things differently and in new ways and uncover new ways that we have, have historically harmed people that we haven't paid attention to, we being um, systemicness, like whiteness, cis, straight, heteronormative patriarchy, right, which I am complicit in. The idea that we're ever fully shed of those things is complicated and probably untrue. So people from the jump in all sort of movements have said, you're never going to be fully there. Uh, Dr. Keith Edwards in 2006 created this like conceptual model and and gave it this like language that you're on your journey of allyship, that there are some different places, different stops along the way. And so the way that he talks about it is he looks at like, what's your motivation for engaging with oppressed communities? Is it selfish because you're only in it for the people that you know and love, but otherwise it wasn't a problem to you? Are you doing it because you think that you need to save people? Or are you doing it because you recognize that if one person is oppressed, we are all oppressed, right? Audre Lorde talks about, I am not free while any woman is in chains, even though her shackles may be very different from my own, right? So that's that idea that like all of us need to be free for anyone to be free. Aspiring allyship asks us to think about what's the focus of the problem, right? So people who are at maybe the beginning of their journey are thinking about individual people as perpetrators of harm, right? Individual racists, individual homophobes, individual people who like one bad cop kind of ideas, right? And those are the problems and that's where we need to focus. I don't mind people focusing on individual hateful people. That can't be the entire focus, right? And so um, the sort of next level of people think about other people in the same, in dominant identities, right? If I separated myself from whiteness and I was like, oh, those bad white people, but I'm one of the good ones kind of idea as a focus of the problem versus recognizing that the system, the way that this is all interconnected and that, that oppression is linked and that I'm not separate from the people that do harm, like I, I am not separate from whiteness. I embody whiteness even as I push against whiteness. Those are aspiring allies for, for justice. And then this like linear idea that you can sort of like see yourself moving through allyship, I think is, is really important because when I think about people that I know and love, like I'll, I think about people in my own family, right? Like I think about my Nana who all of a sudden, like I come out and all of a sudden she rides hard for the queer folks. But like, because she knows one all of a sudden, right? And I am not interested in shaming my 86-year-old grandmother for being late to the table. Instead, I just want to thank her for being there, right? But she can't rest there. Like, I can't sort of just be like, this is the only thing you have to do. It's incumbent upon me. It's incumbent upon all of us to say, there's more, there's further steps in this journey. I don't know anybody who always lives in the aspiring ally for social justice column, because we're humans, right? And there we will have things that we don't see as problematic until they're pointed out to us because we will be defensive when we realize that we may be doing really great work and you're still ableist, for instance, right? All of these things are, are linked in such a way that I just don't think that I'll ever fully understand myself as a, like a fully-fledged ally for social justice. I'm always going to be aspiring. I'm always going to be working on it. And using that language or using that rhetoric is important to me because I worried, specifically in my role in the Gender and Equality Center, that 
we were letting people go through a three hour training and being like, I am good. I'm good for all queer people. Like me and the gays, we got it. <laughs> like I was worried, you know, they're wearing an ally shirt. They're putting on the rainbow. They're like, yes. And I was like, oh, okay, they're, you're maybe doing better than you were three hours ago, but I need you to view this as a constant sort of struggle because patriarchy, heteronormativity, whiteness, capitalism, all of these things that are linked are going to constantly push back on your wants to be an ally, right? They're going to make it hard in some spaces. Um, They're going to make it feel not worth the battle, or they're going to make it feel like it will cost you more. I think it's super important for people to recognize that that means that every day you have to get up and figure that out. Every day I'm confronted with a concern or an issue or a decision. And sometimes they're really easy decisions like where do I spend my money today? Or sometimes they're really hard decisions like do I put my body in a space in the middle of a global pandemic to be tear gassed, right? So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to argue that that's an easy decision to make. But every day those decisions are, are we're confronted with them and I won't get them right every day. Like that's just the true answer is that I won't get them right every day, but how do I get up the next day and try again is the aspiring part of that. And I think it's, I just think that rhetoric matters. Words matter. When you talk about, I'm constantly going to try for this, that I think to me matters so, so much. We have heard for generations, activists, people in movements say, don't name yourself we will name you. You don't need to name yourself. And white people specifically have never really gotten caught up in that because they white people love a label, right? I really love to be thought of as a good white person. The worst thing that happens to white people is to be labeled a racist. And so I get why people get caught up in this idea that like, no, 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 I'm a good one. But it is such a dangerous drug. And it's actually part of whiteness or part of patriarchy or part of heteronormativity for you to be like, no, I am, I'm the good version of this. And pushing against that, even in our language, even with the, like people can think it's just a rhetorical move or just semantics, but I, I think it matters. For sure. It's incredibly easy to see the really bad ones and be like, that's not me. I'm good. Check mark. I'm out, right? To see people in Charlottesville with tiki torches chanting white power and to know that I never do that. That's not me, right? Or to think about Brock Turner raping a woman in this corner. That's not me, right? I'm not complicit in patriarchy or in rape culture. It's so much harder to understand that benefiting from this system makes you complicit in that system, right? And I think Dr. George Yancey talks about the best thing that a privileged person could ever be is an anti whatever that system is, person, right? So like uh, the best thing a white person could ever be is an anti-racist racist. The best thing I as a man could ever be would be an anti-sexist sexist, right? But I'm still a sexist because I'm benefiting from a system that gives me all of these privileges and all of these benefits just as a result of this random biological organ that I have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just because of the beard that I have and the type of clothes that I wear, I, I gain all these benefits. And Particularly, I'm not subject to the violence and persecution that other people who don't perform in similar ways mm-hmm. uh, are subject to. And I think that framing is, is super crucial for people to understand that most of us aren't like the super bad ones. We're not the worst ones. We're not out here doing the terrible things, quote unquote. 
right? But all of us are actively working against these systems um, while still benefiting from those systems. And that'll always be the case until these systems are fully deconstructed and dismantled. I think this point of that, like most people are not the worst of us is important because people really rest on that. But telling white people, every time I give it to white people only talk, right? Like every time I'm asked to, you know, facilitate a white people town hall so that they don't show up in spaces that are not for them. Mm-hmm. When I quote Dr. Yancey and say like the best that I can be and the best that you can be is an anti-racist racist, the faces are like, I can't deal with that. Being a racist is is conceptually the worst thing you could call me. And here you are telling me I have no hope, right? And it's such a, a challenge for folks. And what happens, I think, is that because they think that they're not the worst, they just assume that everything is actually going fine. Mm. Because they probably also don't know any people that are the worst. And so then you end up with just sort of this like complacency that allows everything else to thrive, right? That complacency allows everything else to create structures that are insurmountable for people that don't perform in a certain way, for people that aren't white, for people that don't have access to cultural or economic capital, for people who are not straight, for people who are not cisgender, right? But because people don't know any of the worst people, they're like, well, you know, then this space is actually not that bad. I don't know why people are complaining. Mm. I've never met a truly racist person at OU, for instance, right? That's like sort of like the rhetoric we hear because people are like, it, no one's wearing a Klan robe. Like, I don't know what you're just, like, I don't know. What, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the problem is. Yeah. And in that, that complacency to me, I'm hard pressed to say it's as dangerous, but I, I kind of want to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that complacency, if not as dangerous, is almost as dangerous as people who are literally espousing wildly violent and racist rhetoric because everybody's kind of like a lot of people like written those people off but the complacent people is where we all are that's what everybody has been in a complacent space Mm -hmm. and so that can't that's never going to get written off and so it, it just allows every every insidious problem that we have to just grow and thrive I often think about how I can teach or how I can better explain that if you're not anti-strong enough, then you're just really fully on the other side. Mm-hmm. And people are, they're challenged. <laughs> That's a hard thing for them to hear. And I think it's a, its an important message and one that is not new mm-hmm. and is f- not something that is original to anti-racist white people, right? It's orig- like that is a concept that people of color I keep saying it, but always Black women, like always we should be following Black women leaders, mm-hmm. right, have been saying for generations. Yeah. So recently I had like a pretty long um, like video that I put up on my Instagram story. It was like a blackout day on Instagram. People were blacking out their Instagram. And real quick, you had organizers on the ground who were like, don't use the BLM hashtag. Don't use George Floyd, Breonna Taylor hashtag because you're blocking crucial information from people who are going out on the streets protesting. But then there was also this issue of people like washing their hands of the allied duty um, for that day or that year or for the rest of their lives. And that's what I saw for a lot of white people that I follow, that I went to school with who I know at OU or from high school or what have you growing up, who hadn't said a thing about George Floyd, hadn't said a thing about Breonna Taylor, hadn't said a thing about police violence, um, about any of these things, but were able to post that black box on the Instagram. And that literally being the 
epitome of performative allyship, of, of wanting to make clear that you're not one of the bad ones, that you're not out here killing Black people, so you're good. And just getting white people to understand that it, it's so much deeper than that. And there's, there are small things that you can do that are good and great and important, like reposting on social media and things of that nature. But getting to a place of like really doing substantive um, structural things that are actually disrupting white supremacy and understanding your connection to this larger system of white supremacy is so much more difficult and so much harder and so much more important to actually do for Black people or other people of color. So I could you, I don't know, just any way you want to go with like this idea <laughs> of performative allyship. Yeah, so social media is low risk, right? So like Blackout, I think about that Blackout Tuesday. First of all, I woke up that day and I was like, what is happening? Mm-hmm. And so I posted, I think I posted in my stories some stuff about like, why are we doing this? Who is this serving? And the number of white folks that DM'd me their outrage, mm-hmm. right? That I was questioning their motives. You know, was was honest, was I, I was on, I was really surprised. Like I was hopping on Instagram that day. I was like, this, what? <laughs> this is the thing you're mad at me about. Mm-hmm. It's low risk. And in fact, it became this weird echo chamber of like just black boxes and stuff. And people, it's hard to argue with that sort of like mass thinking movement kind of thing that that honestly does nothing. I recognize that it may have been started by some organizers in the entertainment industry that intended for one thing to happen. And then I'm pretty sure white folks got a hold of it and ruined it because that's that seems par for the course, right? So like I recognize that the intentions are different, but the impact it was what was what was harmful on real-time crucial organizing on the ground as people are trying to gain important gather important information. Mm-hmm. So I think about this performative allyship, I think about it in a couple of different buckets, right? So there's like the individual people that just post like the popular thing, like they'll put the rainbow over their profile pic on the day of Supreme Court justice stuff, but they'll never talk about like, they don't ever, I don't even know if they actually know gay people, right? Or that they understand people as like having a different sexual identity than they do. So that's like one bucket, this like social media thing. And then I think capitalism has allowed people to do performative allyship in another really dangerous way. I think about like rainbow capitalism or pinkwashing, right? So rainbow capitalism is this idea that like for the month of June, Target is going to sell a bunch of pride stuff. Target as a company takes a lot of my queer money, but like, I don't know if they're doing any good with it in queer communities, right? And so that to me is like a whole different level of performative allyship. You know, I'm seeing companies sell Black Lives Matter sort of paraphernalia. I don't know what they're doing with that money. So I think about performative allyship in a couple of different ways and none none of it is good. And all of it is sort of rooted in this idea that I need you to see me as the good one. Like it's back to this idea as I need you to see me as the good one. Don't lump me in with the bad ones, but I'm not really going to do a ton of work to understand how that works, how that plays out in the streets, in boardrooms, in courtrooms, in any of these spaces that are really impactful I just need to make sure that you know that I'm not a bad one. I'm not a bad company. I'm not a bad individual person. I'm not whatever. And it's simply not enough. 
I also worry about people not saying anything. So like, I don't post a lot of stuff. I'm not interested in performing for people. I know what I do for myself. I know what I'm doing. So I don't really need social media to perform it for me, but I am not immune to this idea that I am going to be criticized for not posting enough. I'm not immune to, to like worrying that people are going to be like, is Aaron doing anything? So when I think about this entire concept, I just consistently come back to this idea that I have to be doing this for everyone to be free. And I cannot be worried about what other white people think about me. It's when a trans person tells me that I need to change my, that I change my approach. It's when a black person tells me that I've done something harmful, that I recognize it as harmful. Critiques from other white folks about you're not posting enough or this is performative feel complicated for me. And I need people to be braver into that space. If I'm just being really honest, like I need people to be braver into this space around, I don't have to comment on every single thing to understand that my, my actions as an aspiring accomplice, aspiring ally, aspiring whatever, are still valid. Every Instagram post I come across doesn't have to end up in my story, right? And I, I think that people genuinely are like, I have to do this or I'm going to get called out. And I recognize that comes from a place of like fear and comes from a place of anxiety, but I need people to lean harder into who's calling you out and what are they saying? Now, if a black person is calling you out and saying, I only see you posting on Instagram and I don't see you showing up at literally any of these other opportunities that have been available to you, that's a critique you listen to. If it's, I don't see you posting on Instagram, you should be doing that for clout. That's, that's not a critique, right? That's an invitation to participate in harmful rhetoric. Yeah, I think of like uh, what the NBA and like NFL are doing right now. Yes. Uh, particularly like the NFL, who has been an incredibly like just racist, outright uh, racist. Like, you know, you can think of like the blackballing of Colin Kaepernick, um, but also the, the unwielding support of the institution of policing and things of that nature. But the NBA, like putting like Black Lives Matter on their court mm-hmm. um, and allowing players to like put social justice, air quotes here, people, uh, slogans on the back of their jerseys, right? And I'm like, this is literally a billion, like multi-billion dollar corporation, right? These owners, Mark Cuban, these owners of these teams are making so much money. Like what, fork over, you know, $20 million or something, right? So like local, Yeah, like figure out the water crisis, right? In poverty, literally, if all of the owners got together, like so many things could actually be done. And it just gets to a point where like putting Black Lives Matter, that's cool. And that's good for awareness uh, and allowing people like, even though you're watching these mostly Black men perform for you for your viewing pleasure. and Putting now their bodies ha- on the line. Yeah. yeah. Now you're having to also understand that Black Lives Matter that you're seeing these things. What are you actually doing? What substantial things are you doing? And for those people who are the a part of the ruling class, a part of the 1% by and large, that's a really easy thing for them to do. It's like you're not giving up any sliver of your wealth, but that amount of money can go to some really important things on the ground for local organizations. So that just really like grinds my gears because like the NBA is like, yeah, we're putting these slogans on the court and now we're good. Uh, the NFL is going to play the Black National Anthem. And yeah. I I genuinely had a visceral physical reaction to that. Like, I don't think you should have access to the black national anthem, frankly. Like now if players want that, then that's a specifically black players want that, but then that's a conversation that I'll see myself out of because that's not mine to have. But mm-hmm. the NFL, 
the NFL who has participated in the glorification of like violence on black bodies for money. Honestly, it it just grosses me out. I don't have a better or more eloquent way to say that. And that's all that's about, right? Is that like now it's not economically smart to uh, no longer support your black players or the communities that they come from, mostly like low income communities of color. But now we at least need to do a couple of things to get back into this idea. Again, this idea that we are a good company. Or, and this isn't just, you know, these these sports leagues, but it's also these big corporations. It's also yep. nonprofits. It's also foundations. Literally every sector possible. It's also the University of Oklahoma, right, making a statement on Juneteenth um, or during Pride Month or something of that nature, but not actually showing up in a substantial way for their marginalized students. So where can white people start? Right. So we've talked about sort of this idea of like what allyship isn't aspiring ally, um, you know, and sort of this idea that performative allyship is harmful. Like there's always this question of, you know, I just don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I don't know. So answer that question for white people. For the white folks. So (laughs) the question is frustrating for me because literally every major city, most towns, et cetera, have an entire sector of people, either in grassroots community movement or in organizing, in nonprofit, and wherever, that have literally been telling you what to do for a really long time, right? There are already people out here telling us what to do, and we need to be taking their leads. A really popular thing white people are doing right now is book clubs. And I, listen, I love it. Like, I'm here for you to read some stuff. But like, the reading isn't the work. The reading is catching you up, making sure that you are ready to speak knowledgeably in in a debate or argument is giving you the hidden curriculum that, frankly, was made invisible to you and that you allowed to remain invisible for you. But the reading is not the work. The book club where you feel edgy talking about, like, defunding police as this, like, radical idea, that's not the work. Right. That's that's important. I want us all to keep doing it because I'm a lifelong learner. We got to keep learning. Right. The work is figuring out who in your local community has been telling everyone what to do. Right. Has been organizing, has been um, talking about brutality, has been talking about the housing crisis in your community, has been talking about access to education, has been talking about how poor kids are, are shuttled into poor schools, right? Like there, every single community has people doing that. It's incumbent upon white people to figure out who those people are in their community and then follow their lead. 99 times out of 100, those people are people of color. It is incumbent upon white people to figure out at the local level how they can be impactful because White people have the most power in every local community they belong to. Whether they believe that or not, that is completely true, right? The most, I I grew up in a really small town. I live in like a pretty medium town right now, right? Like white people are in in charge of all those spaces. What's happening right now that I'm seeing is, yeah, white people are going to all these like white people book clubs. And I'm like, okay. But also there's this sense of white urgency all of a sudden. And I'm really concerned that that is also another form of violence, right? All of a sudden white people are like, this is all of a sudden a brand new problem to me and I'm going to solve it right now. Whereas generations of activists, generations of community organizers have been working on this problem, know the ins and outs of the communities that they're working to uplift, 
know what has been tried and what hasn't been tried, know what will be harmful and what will be helpful. And I am really, really, really wary of this moment of this like white urgent moment right now that white people come in and are like, we're here now, we'll solve it. And I, I want need pray, right. That as white people, we resist that we've been trained from birth to think that we have the answers to those problems. We do not. It's really important that we at the local level are looking around and saying, who is doing this really good work? Who can I be in community with? Who can I collaborate with? Who can I take the lead from and move from there? Take a local level, then you look at your state level. Then obviously, like I need, I need everyone to be looking at the national level, right? Like I need everybody to be worried about a fascist police state in Portland. But I need everybody to also remember that this wall of moms movement, while beautiful and necessary, Black women who are mothers have been out here doing this work for since since the jump. Like the mothers of the movement are literally mothers who lost their babies to police violence. So this idea that all of a sudden moms in Portland are going to solve something is offensive and abhorrent to me. Um, I don't want those women to stop doing it, but I want them to think. I want them to think about who they're taking their lead from and how, how they are showing up and what space they're taking up, right? I think that's really important for white folks right now is to think about the space, think about who should be leading it because it should not be a white person. Just full stop, shouldn't be a white person. You can uh, get your checkbook out. You can uh, start making some signs in your garage while you're reading Anti-Racist Baby, Ibram Kendi's new book with your kids. Like, I need you to be doing all those things. But I need you to be taking the lead from people who have already been doing this work and doing it without the benefit of white people noticing. Yeah. And also to note that after getting to that place of understanding that away from this idea of white saviorship or that you have all the answers to also know that, and you talked about this earlier, Aaron, this not making it the burden of those closest to the issues to educate you or to, so, right. So not necessarily going up to your black friend uh, or your local black organizer and being like, what can I do? And when they're like, bro, I'm, I'm worried about, you know, this latest battle uh, with the FOP. I don't really have time to explain to you how you can best show up for me. Not, then getting back to a place of shame or guilt, but I'm trying to help, right? I'm here, I'm, I'm trying to, right? But actually understanding that they have better things to do. So like going about it in a way that isn't putting that burden or that additional emotional labor on, you know, BIPOC folk. Yeah, it, it is shocking to me that white people act so helpless here. Like these are the same people that like within 20 minutes can tell you like every single thing about like the ingredients on the organic food pouch they just gave their toddler. Like you can do your own research. None of this is hidden information, right? This is not do the same, do the due diligence that you do about literally everything else that is less important and, and show up, recognize you're probably going to get it wrong. Lean into that, apologize without caveat and put your money and your body where your mouth is. So my last question for you, I asked all my guests this on this podcast. This is Dream Radically podcast presented by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Um, and it's just sort of this idea of people who are doing this type of work, this justice-oriented work, this work towards liberation, 
the necessity to dream and to imagine. And oftentimes we get sort of caught up in the bog of the latest campaign uh, or the latest initiative or the latest grant application or what have you that we're working on, that we lose sight of our vision or our dream or the end goal of where we're trying to get, which is a place of liberation for all people. So just what is your radical dream? And it can be in relation to whiteness. It can Mm -hmm. be in relation to, you know, uh, gender-based violence prevention, LGBTQ issues, what, what have you. You know, what is your radical dream? That's a really good question. I think that a lot of my radical dreaming is that things that are already being dreamt of become reality, right? Like I think about universal basic income or like a universal healthcare for all. And I I think about the, the disparity that is so baked into our systems is rooted in this idea that everybody didn't deserve something. Everybody didn't work hard enough. Everybody didn't, didn't deserve to win. If I had this like radical understanding, it would be that that, that would go away. The concept of the American dream is manifestly violent. In my opinion, it takes this idea that like anybody can come here and like climb out of the masses, like and put your foot on the neck of a guy behind you. Right. Like, I think it's gross. (laughs) So, and I come from people who are really well rooted in that idea like who love that idea who talk about like succeeding within that idea and I think it's I think it is rooted in this idea that only some people deserve to succeed and so if I had a radical dream is that 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 would get lifted that whole concept of only some people deserve to succeed or win or have a seat at the table the very concept of a table is a mess to me right like when people say make sure someone has a seat at the table it implies that I as a white person own the table like, I, I want to get rid of all of that. I'm a pragmatist at heart, but I'm always like, well, how would that actually happen? That would happen through universal basic income. That would happen through free college. That would happen through healthcare for all. That would happen through reorganizing the way we fund elementary education in the United States, the, the, the K, K-12 funding system. That happens through taxing capital gains at like 90%, right? All of these things are so possible and have logistical solutions inside of the system that I think is broken, but my brain is stuck in the system, right? So my radical dream would be someone to show me what's not the master's house, right? I don't even know what it would look like. I mean, Audrey Lord told me I can't fix the master's house. I can't break out of the master's house with the master's tools, but I don't know what's not. So when I think about that, that question, like it's so challenging for me to answer from a radical perspective because I don't know what it would look like. I'm baked into a system that I know is bad, but I don't know what the alternative is. Was that a depressing answer? It might have been. <laughs> no, I think that answer was great. <laughs> um, and it was real. It's real and it's necessary. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a singular answer, but can be a collective and communal answer to yeah. get to that whatever that place looks like. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us today. It was a really great and powerful conversation. And I appreciate you and your work. Hey, thanks for inviting me. This was this is my first podcast. And I'm really, <laughs> I'm really glad it was this one. So thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically podcast presented by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Like and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the work of FLM at Foundation for Liberating Minds on all social media platforms or on our website at foundationforliberatingminds.org. 
Special thanks to the Third Space in Norman, Oklahoma for providing the beautiful space to record this podcast. Be well and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.